Let me uh, ask you, if you would, to begin to turn to the book of Revelation, because you did not listen quickly enough last week. We are still in chapter 2, but we will get through 2 and 3 this morning. Hey, I mention this every week, not to brag, but just to be accountable and to remind you that the challenge is to hand out uh, five each week. I won't run through them all this week. I was able to hand out six this week. Always well received from folks when you tell them there's hope in the chaos of this world we lived in. So I hope that you're, uh, you're attempting that and uh, trying to get used to the opportunity to share the gospel with folks around us. While you're turning to Revelation, let me mention something very exciting coming up this week. Uh, we're about to launch the spring campaign for 40 Days for Life. You know, we could get real frustrated about our government and feel like things are out of control, but as long as we have Jesus and as long as we have prayer, things are not out of control. I want you to know that in previous 40 Days for Life campaigns, if you don't know what 40 Days for Life is, we set aside 40 days in the fall, 40 days in the spring, simply to pray, not to blockade uh, clinic doors. Many of you know that Chet got arrested. That was for blockading doors. What we do is not going to get you arrested. We simply show up and pray. Geyer Springs takes three days of a campaign, and we say during those three days, we will fill each hour and simply pray. Let me tell you what prayer does. In the last uh, 40 Days for Life campaigns, prayer has caused 18,003 babies to be spared. One of those is in our church. Mm-hmm. 107 abortion clinics have been closed. 211 workers in those clinics, doctors, nurses, and others, have walked away and recognized that God values life and that they couldn't be a part of something like that. So we're going to pray. And uh, that prayer, that 40 Days campaign starts this next week. To launch that, we're going to, this Thursday night at 6.30, be showing the movie Unplanned right here on our campus. We've invited other churches that participate in 40 Days to join us. You can certainly join us. You need to go online and sign up so we make sure you have plenty of seating and social distancing. But uh, the movie Unplanned is something that really open your eyes. It is not graphic, not anything like that. You can bring children to it. But it really opened your eyes. You haven't really thought about what it means um, to, uh, to stand for life and what it means that in our country uh, we are far from that at this point and need to move that direction. So just wanted you to throw that out this Thursday at, at uh, 6.30 right here. And then if you would like to pick a time to pray, there's a, a table in the lobby or you can register online to do that. All right, let's jump right in. Uh, Revelation chapter 2, we're going to jump in this last section in 18 through 29 the uh, church at Thyatira. Thyatira was another city um, that was founded by Alexander, just as Smyrna was that we covered last week. Alexander's men worshiped the god Apollo. That carried over um, to John's day, so that worship was still going on. Thyatira was known for its textiles. They had all kind of textiles they produced. The water in Thyatira had uh, some minerals that allowed them to produce a brilliant uh, red And then the pottery from Thyatira was desired uh, all over that part of the known world, as well as the fact that they had both silversmiths and bronzesmiths that produced beautiful um, statues and things like that. Now, as in other cities, in the city of Thyatira, if you worked in textiles, if you were a bronzesmith, silversmith, whatever, all those folks, all those workers were organized into guilds or into unions. And those unions were not just labor-centric. The unions also were the place of of social activity. The unions were also the religious structure of this city. So what would happen is these unions, these guilds, would hold um, 
festivals or gatherings in the temple to Apollo. And as a part of that festival or the gatherings, of course, it included eating meat that had been sacrificed to Apollo. It included uh, all kinds of pagan rituals that would go on in these temples, all kinds of immorality. Now, you notice in verse 19, Jesus commends these believers at Thyatira for their works. He says that their works are good, that they have love, they have faith, they have patient endurance. He even says, your latter works exceed the first. In other words, hey, you're continuing to grow. You're doing better and better than before. You're on kind of an upward trajectory as a church. But, verse 20, that woman Jezebel. Not a name you hear much today. I doubt any of you have named your daughters Jezebel because even people who aren't very religious recognize that, that the name alone conjures up evil. You remember that Jezebel in the Old Testament led the Israelites into worship uh, of idols, specifically Baal and Asherah. Baal and Asherah were uh, gods of fertility. They could, if the people worshiped them, they would have abundant crops. They would have all the children that they wanted. And you can imagine, among other things that went on in the worship of Baal and Asherah, there was all kinds of immorality that went on in that worship. And so you see here in verse 20, this Jezebel is also encouraging the practice of sexual immorality and idol worship. She's a part of the church, and she's leading astray some of those who are in the church. Here's the situation. If you're in a guild or you're in a trade union, and, and your particular guild or trade union is having a festival and going to the Temple of Apollo, and you know what's going to take place there, you know that as a believer that you can't participate in that, you don't wish to participate in that, but the other members of your guild or your trade union believe if every member is not involved in the worship to Apollo, then Apollo is going to wreak havoc on that trade union. They may suffer uh, poor health or maybe some other malady or, or business will be bad. So if you don't go with them and participate with them, you're going to get expelled from your guild or from your trade union, which basically means you lose your job. And so Jezebel, these believers in the church that are struggling with what to do and how to handle this situation, Jezebel is teaching and encouraging them, hey, it's okay for you to go. It's okay for you to participate in the auto worship and all the immoral practices that are part of that. And she's telling those who are part of Christ, it's okay to have the name of Christ, but also to worship these idols and do things that are abhorrent in the eyes of God. And so basically, if you make that choice as a believer, you're committing adultery both physically and spiritually. And it's probably out of a fear that God can't or God won't meet your needs if you refuse to participate. And so out of that fear and out of the encouragement from this woman that's even in the church, you go and you participate. Now you'll notice Jesus makes clear that he's going to destroy Jezebel, she's going to be judged and condemned along with all those that follow her if they do not repent. Verse 23, he says, I'm going to give to you, I'm going to give to them, to the church, according to their works. That's consistent with Jesus' teaching throughout the New Testament, through the teaching of other uh, New Testament authors. That's consistent that we are rewarded or we are repaid. It may not be a reward, we are repaid according to our works. In fact, in the very last chapter of this book, the last chapter of the last book of God's Word, Revelation 22:12, what does Jesus say? He says, look, I am coming soon, my reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. 
So he's reminding this church, he's reminding these believers, what you do, what you choose, how you live, you will be repaid for that. Verses 24 and 25, he gives this word to those who have not compromised. He says, look, hold fast. If you have to make a decision between Jesus and your career, hold fast to Jesus and trust him and count on him to take care of your needs. Back up and look. Look how Jesus introduced himself to Thyatira. He says, I'm the one with eyes like a flame of fire, eyes like laser, that, that he, he can penetrate with his vision. He can see all, and feet like burnished bronze. You remember last week, burnished bronze stands for strength and for power. What is he saying to them? Look, I, I'm greater than the guilds that are part of your city. I, I'm greater than the guild of the, of the bronzesmiths. I am above all. He's saying, look, don't let Jezebel mess this up for you. Don't let her turn your focus and your attention away from me and the fact that I am all you need and I will care for you and don't fall for all of that. And so the question for these believers and the question for us is what, what value do we put on the Lord Jesus? What are we willing to give up for him? What if we had to make the choice that they had to make? What are we willing to give up for him? Is he trustworthy? And can we count on the fact that he will indeed care for us? Look in verses 26 to 28 at the promise that he has made to them. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. What's he saying? Listen, believers in Thyatira, you may not have power now. You, you may be weak, but you will have power. In fact, you're going to reign with authority. For now, you, you might pay a price. You might do without, but what does he say? I'm going to give you the bright morning star. What is that? He's saying, I'm going to give myself to you. I'm going to be yours, and you're going to be mine, and I am all you need. So as they face that temptation to compromise, to make sure their needs are taken care of, he reminds them, you need to hold fast to me. I am all you need. Chapter 3, the church in Sardis, our fifth church this morning, the church in Sardis. Sardis gets no commendation. This should be startling to us. They get no commendation at all. He doesn't say anything to them about the things they're doing well. He only gives them a very stern warning. Now, Sardis, like most of these uh, other cities, um, worships many gods, the imperial worship, the worship of the emperor, all that affects every aspect of life. Now, here's something to know about Sardis. Sardis had the largest synagogue outside of Palestine. Massive synagogue. Why? Well, Judaism was accepted in the Roman Empire. Now, there were all these false gods. You had to pledge your loyalty, your allegiance to, to the emperor, to Caesar, and say that he is your God and he is your Lord. But the Romans allowed, they're very tolerant, they allowed the worship of any god as long as your god was not greater than the Roman gods. So, as people had begun to come to Christ in these cities, uh, Christians were initially seen by the Romans as just another sect of Judaism because they worshipped the same god that the Jews worshipped. And because it was legal, uh, actually until Nero became the emperor and until Rome burned because Christianity was legal as just another sect of Judaism, they didn't experience a lot of suffering, a lot of persecution until after the time of Nero. So what was happening in Sardis, you see in verse 1, he says to the believers in Sardis, you think you're alive, but you're dead. 
What is he saying? Well, you're deceiving yourselves. You're, you're not okay like you think you're okay. Verse 3, he tells them, I will come like a thief. In other words, you don't know when. Now, that, that first introduction there in verses 1 through 3 kind of hit a historical nerve. He says to them, you think you're alive, but you're dead. You think you're okay, but you're not. And here's the historical nerve that it hit. Back in the, in the 500s B.C., there was a king named Croesus, and he was king over that area of Lydia, and he at Sardis built this impregnable, impregnable fort up on a, a uh, rise that had 1,500-foot cliffs that dropped off on three of the sides. And so they felt like they were completely safe there in Sardis in this fortification, and they could not be conquered. Well, along comes Cyrus the Persian, and Cyrus comes, and he attempts to take the city and take the fortification, but he can't do it. Uh, they can't get up there without being, uh, having, having uh, weapons pointed at them, raining down on them. They couldn't do it. And so Cyrus laid siege to this fortification. His soldiers were camped all the way around it, and they laid siege, and they were there for weeks. And one night, one of the soldiers noticed one of the soldiers in the fortification lean over to look down the side, and his helmet fell off and tumbled down that 1,500 feet. And then he watched as the soldier in the fortification came down a set of stairs and out a secret door to retrieve his helmet and went back inside. And so Cyrus created a diversion on the other side of the fortification, and his special forces, knowing where the secret door was, went in and they conquered the city, and they destroyed it. Well, uh, the people of Sardis rebuilt that fortification, rebuilt the city, and again the Persians came. And they invaded, and they laid siege around that fortification, and a soldier noticed that a particular spot in the wall when someone in the city died, when that siege was laid, and they didn't want to keep the dead body in the city, he noticed a spot where they would throw the bodies over the wall and down the side of that cliff. And he noticed at that spot, probably because of the stench, the wall wasn't well guarded. And so once again, a second time, they thought they were safe, but a, a second time they were conquered. And so the history of the city was they would think they were safe, but they were not. And to those people, uh, to those believers, he said, listen, you think you're alive, but you're not. Because just like those soldiers came, just like the Persians came, at an hour that you don't know, I'm going to come against you. Well, what was he upset about? What was the problem at Sardis? We've already seen the pressure that came upon believers whenever they uh, were living in the Roman Empire, whenever they declared the exclusivity of Jesus as Lord. That always caused problems for those believers. But the believers at Sardis had a great plan to keep from having that kind of pressure. And their plan was very simply this. Let's just all get along. Let's just all get along. We don't have to quibble over whether Caesar's Lord or Jesus is Lord. Everyone can believe in whatever God they want. And the problem with that in their culture and in ours is when you make that decision, you kill the message. The message has no power. Jesus didn't come just to be one of many gods and to fit into the world system. Jesus came to conquer. Jesus came to deliver people who've been captured by these other gods and to set them free from other gods and other symptoms. He didn't come just to be another god, just to be on the same level, the same playing field as all the other gods. 
I'll never forget my, my first, well, I should say my only trip to India because I've been blacklisted. I can't go back into the country. But the first time I went, I'll never forget one evening having a gathering of about 150, 175 people in this one village, and, and we had shared compassion kits with them that you provided. And then at the end of that time, we were going to share the gospel message. And so I got up and shared the gospel message and, and shared who Jesus was and shared how they could come to faith in Christ. And I said, and they all sit down. That there aren't chairs or pews. They're all sitting on the ground. And I said, now, if, you're, if you want tonight to accept Christ, and I knew this could bring hardship. They could, they could be kicked out of their family for trusting Christ. I said, tonight, if you want to accept Christ, I'm going to ask you to stand up to declare your loyalty to Christ. And about 110 people stood up. And I thought, uh-oh. I said, no, no, sit back down. Because I recognized those who were standing so readily agreeing to accept Christ were just planning to do what Hindu people do, and that is just add another God to the mix just to be sure everything's covered. And I went through the gospel again and explained the exclusivity of Christ and explained that if you come to Christ, you can't keep following these religious leaders that you have. You can't keep all these idols in your home that you worship. Christ is the only true and living God. And if you trust Christ, you trust him alone. Well, the people in Sardis, the, the believers in Sardis, had so compromised the gospel and compromised the message that Jesus wasn't the only true God. They just decided to get along and let everybody worship whoever they wanted to worship. Now, how do we know that happened? How do we know that the gospel was compromised? Well, we have archaeological proof. When the synagogue, remember, God said, I'm the only God. You'll have no other gods before me. When the synagogue was excavated in Sardis, around the altar of the synagogue were sculptures of the Roman eagle and other animals that indicated loyalty to the empire. Around the altar in the Jewish synagogue. All through the the, the synagogue, the, the decorations, the reliefs in the synagogue depicted both Lydian culture and there were pictures or reliefs of the different pagan temples in the synagogue. That'd be like us in here having a, uh, an elephant on this wall and a donkey on this wall and, and all manner of things that represented either our government or our culture on the walls of our sanctuary. In the marketplace in Sardis, when, when it was excavated, there was a, a stall that had a cross on it, a symbol that, that uh, the owner of that stall, the person who sold out of that stall, was a believer, and the one next to it had a Jewish symbol on it. The one next to it had a, a Lydian cultural symbol on it. Well, why is that a big deal? Because every other city you look at, when the believers took a, a stand for Christ, they were kicked out of society. They were kicked out of the marketplace. This showed that the believers were readily accepted. Why? Because they didn't say Jesus. Jesus is the only God. They decided just to go along to get along. Verses 3 and 4, Jesus tells them, look, you need to strengthen what remains. What is he saying? You've reduced me to the level of these other powerless gods. You need to bring me back to full power. You need to strengthen what remains. He tells them, remember what you have received and what you have heard. What did they receive and what what did they heard? Well, for certain, they had heard Jesus' own words from John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. They had heard, before they could come to Christ, they had heard a clear gospel message that Jesus was the only way, that Jesus is the only true God, that you need to repent from worship of any other God, and you need to obey him. 
But verse 4 says they had soiled their garments. What does that mean? It means they had, they had brushed up against things that would stain. What's that? All these false religions. They had stained the gospel message with the message of all these false gods and false religions. And so he tells them in verse 5, the one who conquers. You remember last week, we saw in all these letters the, the reward for those who conquer. You remember we said last week that conquer is a military term. It's going to be a struggle. The Christian life is not going to be easy. Standing for Jesus alone and making him exclusive Lord of your life is not going to be easy. It's going to be a battle. But he says for the one who conquers, he will walk with Jesus dressed in white. In this day, a champion, in, in, the, in the games perhaps, a champion, all those who were part of his victory, a champion who was coming home from battle, from a military victory, and all those who were part of the victory would wear white robes. Jesus said, if you hold fast, you're going to wear a white robe. You're going to walk with me in a robe of white. And he's also saying to those believers who had decided to be a part of the culture, you're not going to be the victor. I, I'm the victor, and those who refuse to compromise will join me in victory. Look also in verse 5, he says, For those who conquer, those who overcome, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. Now, let me take a moment to address this because you, you may have heard this. Some, when they read this sentence, I will never blot his name out of the book of life, some take this to mean that it's possible for a believer's name to be blotted out of the book, that it's possible that you can come to Christ and then you could lose your salvation, your name could be blotted out. That's not at all what is uh, expressed here in the Greek. It's not intended to be a, a threat, but it's an ironclad promise. In the Greek, this is a double negative Literally, it would be translated this way, I will never, ever, under any circumstances, erase his name. Now, some of you are thinking, now, Pastor, I I've heard you say before that there are people who claim to belong to Christ, they prayed and received Christ, but you've said that because they're living a sinful life, they don't belong to Christ. Does that mean that they prayed and invited Christ into their life, and then because of their sinful lifestyle, their name was blotted out if you're saying they're not believers? No. I try to clarify this as often as I can, so let me clarify it right now. Claiming to be a believer does not guarantee anything. Just because a person goes to church, just because a person is involved in church, just because perhaps a person as a child or at an earlier time in life prayed a prayer and asked Jesus to forgive sin, just because that person even got wet in a baptistry, none of that means their name is written in the book in the first place. It's not about what we claim. It's not about our lip service. It's about our life service. A true believer is someone who follows Christ, someone who lives for Christ, someone who obeys what he says. That person will never be cast out. If you see someone living a lifestyle of habitual sin and, and there's no remorse and no repentance, I would submit to you, regardless of what they may have said, they don't belong to Christ. If you belong to Christ, you follow him. You obey. I'm not saying you never sin, but if you truly belong to Christ, you can't just go on in sin and have no conscience and no conviction about it. If you truly belong to Christ, the Holy Spirit is going to be all up in your grill convicting you about sin, and if you truly belong to Christ, you're going to repent. 
need to understand and, and be prepared for us in our culture that the pressure to get along as it was in Sardis is going to become greater and greater in our culture. You know, if, if you told a friend or coworker who wasn't a believer, if you told a friend or coworker, they asked you, well, you know, what, what is it? Why do you live the way you live? And you told a friend or coworker, well, I live the way I live because I follow Jesus. That, that probably won't be a big deal. They'll go, oh, okay. But if you tell your friend or coworker who doesn't follow Christ that their belief system is wrong, that Jesus is the only way, that he's the only true God, don't expect peace and unity. In our culture, more and more, it's not acceptable to be exclusive about Jesus and his lordship. In fact, Jesus himself, if you want to look back in Luke 12, Jesus himself said that he came to divide. He didn't come to bring peace and unity. And, and your friends, if you truly share what you believe and your stance for Christ, uh, your friends are pro probably going to write you off. Jesus is saying to those in Sardis, I will never write you off. But you can't just go along to get along. Philadelphia, chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. Philadelphia was a city that had been neglected by the Roman Empire. In AD 17, there was this huge earthquake that affected several of these seven cities. Philadelphia is one of the cities that experienced a lot of destruction. And so the Roman government, in their great generosity, suspended the tribute or the taxes that they had to pay to Rome, suspended it for five years, but did nothing else to offer to help them to rebuild the city. So they felt neglected by the Roman Empire. Philadelphia also felt betrayed by the Roman Empire. See, a big part of their economy in Philadelphia was these huge vineyards, these incredible vineyards that were the envy uh, of all the area around them. But when Domitian became the emperor of Rome, he had all the vineyards in Philadelphia torn out because he didn't want them competing with his vineyards in Rome. And so he broke the, the backbone of their economy. So the Philadelphians were a, a people, a city that felt neglected and betrayed by the Roman Empire. And in this city that felt neglected and betrayed by their government was a group of believers that also felt neglected and betrayed. When the Jews scattered over the Roman Empire, they built synagogues in, in every city. Again, that was allowed. That was legal because they could worship their God. That the, the, the empire was tolerant of that as long as he was not greater than the Roman gods, as long as they didn't make that declaration. Well, the early Christians, because they didn't have a, a building to worship in, the early Christians would go worship in the synagogue. And that was fine. Everything was fine. There was peace and there was harmony among the, the Jews who didn't believe Jesus was Messiah and the believers who did until the point came when they began to press the issue that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the only Lord. And when they began to press that issue, they were kicked out of the synagogue. And when they were kicked out of the synagogue, because that was also a social center, and that was a center where business might be conducted among that group of people who were different and distinct from the pagans in their city, when they were kicked out of the synagogue, many of them lost family and certainly lost their friends and their connections and their relationship. And literally, when that happened, if they tried to show up at the synagogue for worship, they were stopped at the door. If your family happened to show up late one Sunday and, and you knocked on the door, the little peephole would open and they would see who you were and they would slam it shut and you wouldn't be allowed in. 
when the Christians were, were kicked out of the synagogue, if, if you were a part of the synagogue and your name was on the roll, they kept a roll, your name was on the roll of the synagogue, remember, you were exempt from imperial worship. You didn't have to declare that Caesar was Lord and that he was God. But when they got kicked out of the synagogue, their names were marked off the roll. And that put their very lives at stake. You understand that all over the world today, except here in the West, all over the world today, Christians are excluded and are suffering because of their exclusion. Every week I get prayer reports of believers in other nations who are, are, are thrown out of their villages. Their homes are burned. Their possessions are destroyed. Many of them are banished from their own families if the families don't plot to kill them before they can escape. These believers in Philadelphia had been betrayed by the authorities in the synagogue, and yet they refused to compromise. You don't see a word of condemnation against them from the Lord, only commendation. Why? Because they didn't give up. They didn't give in to the shame of being an outcast. They, they were willing to risk their lives with the government. And so look how Jesus introduces himself to the Philadelphians in verse 7. He says, I am the holy one, and I am the true one. What does holy mean? It means completely other, co completely different. It means perfect, means one who will do no wrong. I am the true one, absolutely faithful. I will never neglect or betray you. That's, that's the word they needed. Hey, I understand how deeply hurt you are by the neglect and the betrayal of, of, of the Jews, of the leaders of the synagogue, but I'm never going to neglect you. I, I'm, I'm never going to betray you. Look what he says. I have the key of David. What is that? It's the key to the house of Israel. It's the key to God's people. And he says, when I open the door, no one shuts it. Listen, the door's not going to be slammed in your face as it is when you try to go to the synagogue because I have the key. I'm the one who opens the door. No one can shut the door that I open. Verse 8, you, you've kept my word. You've not denied my name. Even though you have little power, you've been faithful. You may feel like, Philadelphian believer, that, that, that you're not really having any impact, any effect. But listen, you've been faithful. You may feel completely powerless. But listen, I notice that you've been faithful. Verse 10 can be a trip hazard for some. He says, because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now, some scholars like to use this verse to prove the, the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. We don't know that with certainty from this verse. There's some grammatical difficulty here with the verb keep and the preposition from, I will keep you from. It's not completely clear if that meant that he was going to remove them from the hour of trial or if he would keep him in the trial, that, that God's miraculous hand would keep them from the most uh, serious or severe effects of the trial. We, we don't know. But I'll tell you what we do know, regardless of what you believe about the tribulation and, and the timing of Christ come for the church, whether you're a pre-trib or a mid-trib or a post-trib, regardless of where you stand on that, Scripture is very clear that Christians should anticipate trouble or persecution in the world. Just because it hasn't come here, hasn't come to us yet, doesn't mean it's not going to happen. But he's also making clear that whatever we face, Jesus will be with us and Jesus will get us through. We can count on that. 
place our faith in that. Verse 12, what's the reward for the one who conquers, who, who overcomes in the struggle? Verse 12, he'll be a pillar in the temple of my God. What's a pillar? Well, it's, it's stable. It's, it's steady. It, it's not going to be removed. If you're a pillar in the temple of God, nobody's going to come in and, and sweep you out and remove you. Never, he says, never shall he go out. You're not going to be put out. You're not going to be excluded. Those who conquer will receive God's name as their possession and the new Jerusalem as their citizenship, a permanent place in his kingdom. Well, we come to the seventh. I need to move very quickly through this one, but Laodicea. Uh, Laodicea is probably one of the most famous churches known. Uh, chapter 3, verses 14 through 22, Laodicea had a booming economy. They were at the, the crossroads of trade routes. They were a banking center. They had beautiful textiles. They, they had an ISAB. They had a medical center there to develop an ISAB that people came from all over the known world to get this ISAB. Because of those things, Laodicea was a city of great affluence. Even the believers in Laodicea had great affluence. They were wealthy, wealthy people. In fact, here's how wealthy they were. When that earthquake hit in A.D. 17 and several cities were destroyed, the people of Laodicea said to the Roman government, hey, we don't need you. We got this. We can rebuild our own city. We, we don't need any help from the government. Now, one thing about this very wealthy city is that there was no uh, water in the city, not enough water to sustain and support the city. So they, they piped in their water from several miles away. To the north of Laodicea was Colossae up in the mountains. They had cool, refreshing mountain streams. To the, the south and a little bit east of Laodicea was the Hierapolis. They had hot springs, so there was cold water. There was hot water, but Laodicea basically had no water. So they, they piped it in from several miles away. They built this aqueduct out of a, out of a material like tile, or pottery, and they built this aqueduct, and the water was piped into the city, but by the time the water got to the city, it was, it was tepid, or it was lukewarm. It, it wasn't very um, refreshing. And what you see in Laodicea was the strongest reproof of all seven churches. Jesus literally says to them, you make me sick. You're, you're not hot, you're not cold, you're lukewarm, and you literally, the King James uses this word spew, S-P-U-E. Maybe a closer definition or, or, or word that we could define would be the word vomit. You make me so sick, I, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Why is that? Look at verse 17. You say you're rich, prosperous, and have need of nothing. He's saying to these Laodicean believers, you don't need me. You have excluded me. You think that you can use your money, your affluence, your wealth to buy whatever you need in this life. Do you remember the warning that God gave to the Israelites back in Deuteronomy as they're about to go into the promised land, the promised land that he had provided for them? He said, you're going to get in the land and you're going to live in these comfortable homes that you didn't build. You're going to get in the land, and you're going to enjoy affluence and, and wealth. You're going to enjoy abundant crops. Every, every need that you have is going to be met. And you're going to start thinking, look what we did. And, and, and he warns them. He says, you're going to forget me. 
You're going to forget you didn't make all that happen. You're going to get so focused on the gift that you're going to forget the giver. And he warned them to be careful not to forget him. You've probably heard in the past on more than one occasion of the incredible growth of the church in China. Until very recently, when I think they've been surpassed by Iran, China was the fastest growing church in the world in the midst of incredible suffering and persecution like is unknown in most other countries. And that suffering and that great persecution made the church strong and caused the church to spread rapidly. Do you know that recently church leaders in China are seeing the church beginning to weaken? And they attribute that to the growing affluence in China. Verse 17, Jesus says to these affluent people, hey, you may look good materially and and from a worldly perspective may look like you've got it all together, but spiritually from a godly perspective, look how he describes them. You are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. For me, when I read that, it kind of harkens back to Jesus' teaching in Matthew 16. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? These people thought that they had gained the world. These believers had forgotten about Christ and decided they didn't need him because they had everything that money could buy. And so he tells them in verse 18, buy from me. Stop, stop looking at the world and all that you have that's, that's from the world. Start looking to me. What does he say, buy from me? Gold refined by fire. They knew what gold was. What did it mean to be refined by fire? It meant that character had been strengthened and developed under trial and under pressure. You see, unlike these other cities where they had to to take a stand, they had not been tried. They had not had hardship. They had not had any pressure. And, And if they took an overt stand for Christ, then hardship would come. But the result of that hardship is they would be refined by fire. They would have godly character developed, and they would be like gold. Buy from me, he says, white garments. What are white garments? White garments represent the righteousness of Christ. You see, these Laodicean Christians and all the wealth that they had were like the emperor who had no clothes. They were spiritually naked. He's saying to them, you you can't even come before God. You're so shameful. You can't even come before God because you're not clothed in the righteousness of Christ. In the righteousness of Christ, you have full access to God. He says, buy from me, I salve. In other words, let, let me heal your spiritual blindness so you can see the world from God's viewpoint. And then probably one of the most famous verses in Scripture, chapter 3 and verse 20, he tells them he stands at the door and knocks, and if they open the door, he will come in, and they will have fellowship together. Now, many of you, I've had some of you tell me this week, reading ahead, you know, I came to Christ. Part of my coming to Christ was Revelation 3.20, understanding that Christ was standing at the door and knocking, and if I would just open the door, I would have a relationship with him. And, and that is a verse that clearly points to the fact that a person can come to faith in Christ, that Christ is, is knocking. But I want you to see this morning, it's also for, because this is addressed to believers, it's also for those who have already received Christ, but they pushed him out. He's saying, you need to recognize you've, you've pushed me to the outside. But I'm willing for our relationship to be restored. 
he's saying to these Laodicean believers and, and to us, I am all you need. Nothing else and no one else is going to satisfy. You may be deeply entrenched in the things of the world. You may have all of your material needs met. You may have all the comforts of life, and you may think things are great. But I'm what you need. Nothing else is going to satisfy apart from you walking faithfully and consistently with me.